0: Welcome to Human First, my name is David Tilston and this podcast explores the methods, habits and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilise the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. This week, I welcome Mark Roberts to the podcast. Mark has a wealth of experience as a certified Ashtanga yoga teacher kin stretch instructor, FRC mobility specialist, and much more. During this episode, we dive into Mark's journey and how he got into yoga, what he has learned as a practitioner, teacher, and parent, as well as looking at many other movement disciplines and methods that he has explored over 25 years. Let's get into it. Mark, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, David. Good to see you again. Good to see you, buddy. Uh, Last time was Bali, 2020, before this all kicked off. You're in Bali now just for those listening, Um, but you moved out of Bali for a bit as well, didn't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we actually, we bought a house in Bali in March, 2020. So just after I saw you and then COVID happened. So we, and we were having a baby. So we went back to India to have the baby and then we got locked into India, locked out of Bali for a year, a year and a bit. And now we've been back since April.
0: Were they letting no one into Bali at all? Oh, there were some opportunities if you could get business visas and stuff. There
1: were no tourist visas. There were business visas. Um, But there were no flights out of India. It's really difficult
0: to get to Bali. In terms of India, how are they getting on now? Is in Deepika's family and are they good? Oh, man, as if nothing ever happened, yeah. So they
1: had that massive surge in April and May. And then now it's... I think the cases are pretty low, like maybe 10,000 a day or something
0: like that. I mean, low for India. Yes, huge population. Yeah. That's good to hear. That's good to hear, man. I mean, obviously, you're well known within the yoga community uh, initially, as well as other circles. Now, how did you start to get into that journey um, in terms of learning yoga as a whole? And what system styles and methods did you explore over the years? So
1: I started in 97. It was my first official yoga class but you know as a teenager i had been already on i wouldn't say it's a teenager; it's probably late yeah maybe late teens i started already getting interested in meditation practices and also i had been into martial arts as a teenager so i kind of had you know not the martial arts and yoga the same thing but they have there's something there's that kind of warrior discipline there also there's that flexibility element involved in martial arts, in karate. So when I found yoga, it was kind of like, that was a good combination of meditation and this a dynamic movement practice. But yeah, I was not, you know, I had kind of, by my 20s, I was not so much into fighting anymore. I, was more, I wanted something a
0: bit more peaceful. <laughs> I suppose going from martial arts, I mean, this is what I saw when I started yoga, is that I already had martial arts, background as well. So like you said, there was a discipline aspect to it as well, which you probably found really translated well from karate, as opposed to maybe some other flow based martial arts, because it was very much like position A, B, C, and so on in terms of catas. Just so people know certain aspects of karate a little bit more, not that they don't move, but there's a lot of static postures in there that you have to attain and obviously that link to asana can definitely broach across, can definitely be seen in terms of its translation. Is that something that you found really sort of attracted you to it and kept you in it from 97 onwards?
1: Yeah, it's a good point, man. I haven't, it's been so long now, like I'm 47 now, so it's like 30 years or so since I did martial arts. So I haven't haven't really thought about it in that sense. Um, of how it related to you know the similarities besides what I said just in terms of the discipline and so on and the flexibility yeah but in terms of like holding those positions for long periods and so on, can't really say I just know that by that time in my life I was I was about 22 when I found yoga I was
0: looking for something
1: that the world was not giving me
0: let's put it that way so your first journey was to was it Mysore? Was that one of the first places you went to?
1: So I started in Australia. At that time, I wanted to be a scuba diving instructor and a travel rider. To be honest, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wanted to travel the world. And I thought those two things would be good options to like help me to finance that. But in that process, that's where I found the yoga. So my first kind of travels, I started meditating. Then I was in Australia in 97, uh, and Sydney my mum took me to my first yoga class. And then from there, I moved to Cairns, the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, And that's, I guess, where my yoga journey started to get much deeper. Uh, Up there, I got dengue fever. People don't really think of Australia as a place where you're gonna get dengue fever, but it is there in the tropics. And basically, at that point in time, I was still doing a lot of running, going to the gym, that kind of stuff and starting to go to more yoga classes Uh, and then i got dengue and it just wiped me out like my immune system just crashed had no energies kind of like having chronic fatigue or something like that and my teachers were ianga teachers and they started getting me into restorative yoga practice and i found that was the only thing that i could do and it really made me feel better so it kind of sparks something within me that made me realize that well, there's something to this. There's something to all these asanas, to this yoga
0: that is more than meets the eye. and really inspired me to go deeper into it. So what took you from going from quite restorative practice to a more dynamic, I'd say stressful in a way, because um, of the the postures that would be seen within like the Ashtanga Vinyasa method? What sort of got you into that or converted you across?
1: Uh, I guess as I got better, as I recovered from the dinghy and got my energy back and you know, I was getting into the yoga and those teachers also were practicing Ashtanga. So they got me onto the Ashtanga method. Uh, they were teaching a Mysore style class, even though they were Ayanga teachers, they were already you know, going outside of the box a little bit. Because I was also had the travel bug big time. Like I just wanted to travel. So I said to them, you know, I want to go to India and I want to find a a teacher I want to find a guru. And they gave me two options. They said, one, you can go to Ienga, but there's a three year waiting list, or you can go to Patabi Joyce if you don't mind a bit of pain. I think you'll like it. (laughs) And then I was like, cool, sign me up. Tell me more about it. And that was it so that was I guess already coming to 98 so then I went back to Sydney and started working uh, landscaping and lawn mowing kind of jobs I used to like doing that and it was decent money and it allowed me like I would go to work and get home by 3 p.m and then I would go to yoga in the city so I used to travel like an hour each way to get to my yoga class each afternoon after carrying bricks and digging holes and all that kind of shit all day long. Uh, it's like that motivation, man. You don't see that a lot these days with people because it's all so too easy, you know. If you looked in the yellow pages under why, you know, there were like maybe 20 listings or something in the whole of Sydney for yoga schools. Yeah. So things have changed a lot.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. That I've noticed, I mean, it's something that obviously now is probably even more prevalent being, being a father trying to find those times. It it requires a lot of effort, a lot of planning It sometimes it's like, right. Getting your stuff ready, because if you get an hour window sprinting out the door, doing what you need to, and coming back in again, or even doing something whilst the little ones walking around you or, or sort of crawling around, it does require dedication and an hour drive each way definitely shows that. This episode is sponsored by Ape Nutrition. As a company, their ethos to support sustainable farming methods and a no-sertail nutrient-dense approach really resonates with me for environmental purposes and overall human performance. To find out more about their nutritional products and to support the podcast, head to apenutrition.co.uk and use the code HUMAN, H-U-M-A-N, at the checkout to save 10%. Back to the podcast. So how long did you spend once you got to India? How long were you there? So I went to India in '99, and I was there for six
1: months in total. Uh, but the first three months, more or less, I traveled uh, mostly up in the north. In those days, I would travel by bus and by train everywhere. So that was you know, just amazing, in- intense, and pretty difficult uh, journey i would say and then i got down to the south to mysore and i stayed there for three months on that trip people may have heard me tell the story before but basically after that time in mysore which the thing about being in one place and having a community of friends and being having a practice and having that focus was it became comfortable and then when i started traveling again in india i was traveling up to nepal it was even more uncomfortable than it had been before i arrived because when i first arrived in india i didn't have anything to compare it to and then i got very comfortable in Mysore. then i left and then it really hit me you know how difficult it was to travel in india like traveling on trains i remember like getting stuff stolen every stop people trying to you know con you rip you off trying to hustle after a while it just gets overwhelming all the noise the chaos it's changed india's changed a lot it's not so much like that anymore but back in those days it was very very intense i actually ended up having a big breakdown a catharsis in varanasi and just kind of lost it just broke down crying and just felt really really homesick and decided to change my plans and to go back to australia which is what i did And then it was one of those things that turned out to be a turning point because instead of going to Nepal and going to Thailand and stuff, which is my original plan and trying to find a job in the dive industry, I ended up going back to Australia and that's where I ended up doing my apprenticeship with Eileen Hall. I'm not sure if you know her, but she's a legend in the yoga world, particularly in Australia. So I ended up with her as her apprentice like three weeks later or something after I got back and then that was that was it that kind of set the wheels in motion and that really changed the course of my life because up until that time you could say I was kind of rudderless I didn't really know where I was going what I was doing I was just kind of floating and then once I started that apprenticeship it really gave me a direction and made me really go deeper into my yoga studies and my yoga practice. And then it was good timing because at the end of the nineties was the the yoga boom was underway. So by the early two thousands, yoga in Sydney worldwide had really started to take off. I'm sure you would have seen the same thing in the UK. Oh yeah. And it was perfect because I was in the right place. You know, I was, I was starting off as a teacher. I already had a few years under my belt and I was at a very uh, well-respected, it was actually, the, at the, in those days, it was a top school in Australia where I was working.
0: I see this so much. The A little bit of adversity is almost needed to direct people on the path that they felt now in hindsight was probably the best path for them. I almost feel if you don't get that adversity, maybe if you hadn't done that that leg of that journey, it wouldn't have pushed you into where you ended up today, or I suppose even back in Australia.
1: Yeah. I didn't go into the story before. And that's where, you know, as a kid, I was, had a lot of problems at school. There were a few incidents. I remember like when I, you know, I was in, I don't know, four or five years old or something, and that's where kind of, I look back and I realize that's where it started. We were learning to tell the time and not on a digital clock a clock with the hands yeah and um teachers like oh mark what's the time tell us what the time is and i couldn't tell the time and then the teacher's like oh so you're not as smart as you think you are are you mark and i just got so upset man i just said shut up you bitch <laughs> got up and chased me and chased me all around the classroom and finally cornered me and then took me outside pull my pants down and just started giving me you know spanking me and I remember like that really had such a you know like a really strong effect on my psychology you know and I guess in some way that started a pattern in my life where I was in trouble with authorities and then you know it continued when I went to I went to a started off at a private boys school got in a lot of trouble there in those days who had corporal punishment so used to get caned uh, not for doing anything crazy like um, we one time we were in a, it was speech class and the teacher was a woman she said uh you know if my daughter came home with a boy who didn't speak english properly i wouldn't let her go out with him and this was a christian school right and you know the christian message is all meant to be about love and all this kind of stuff right so i said to the teacher that's not a very christian attitude is it miss and yeah that was it man i got taken to the year master's office and uh six of the best across the hand so all that kind of stuff was going on i think by the time i was 12 or 13 i developed a nervous stammer and i remember that year my report card the teachers telling my parents that I should, or I needed to go see a psychiatrist. So it was a lot of stuff I was pretty kind of tormented as a kid in some ways. And I think that carried on through my teen years and I started experimenting, doing drugs and all that kind of stuff, drugs, alcohol, partying, raves. The rave scene started in Australia, end of the nineties. So that was in my last two years at school which wasn't so good for my schooling, (laughs) to be going to rave parties on Saturday nights, and then it would take the whole week to recover. But what I'm getting at is like, there was a part of me that was both angry and unhappy. But in some level, deep internal level, I knew that I didn't want that to be the story for the rest of my life. And I knew that I wanted to change and then I wanted to break free. And that's actually what the traveling was all about. I wanted to travel so I could just leave, create a new identity, leave all my past behind and go out into the world and just become somebody new. And finding yoga and meditation was part of that. And that was, you know, when I say like in my teens, I was into martial arts and wanting to fight because I guess that anger was there. Whereas in my 20s, it shifted towards wanting to find that peace within and i wouldn't have found that if it wasn't for all that adversity that i had gone through
0: as a kid yeah i suppose the challenge is being able to cultivate that sensation of understanding that we go through many lifetimes within one life and we we can revamp ourselves even on a daily basis without needing to escape in a physical sense but actually trying to disconnect from culture and ego daily or at least understanding how it works because then when you know how it works, you go, okay, well, yeah, 10 years ago, my views were so different to now. So am I the same person? Most of the cells in my body have changed as well. So physically that shifted, but that's the hard bit because culture wants to say you're the same person you were as a kid and that's how it stays.
1: Yeah. I mean, I go through that now as well because I spent so many years uh, cultivating this yoga teacher yoga practitioner identity and then in, you know, in the last few years i've noticed myself just changing and moving away from that and like you say it's an it's a it's a big shift going through a different identity in the same lifetime
0: i find that hard as well uh, it's something that when i started to explore yoga um, as a whole, and uh, obviously looking at the Ashtanga Vinyasa method and learning under Paul for the brief amount of time I was with him, and obviously living in Thailand for the year, it became something I got really keen on and obsessed with, and then started to teach, started to do quite well with it. People were very interested. People seem to like a system because they can go, okay, I, I know this system. So they come into class and it's, they feel very grounded in the fact that, again, it's familiarity, what you were saying about spending time in Mysore, and then moving out, when you leave a community, or you leave something you know very well, it shakes everything up. So to go and investigate a completely new movement discipline is quite a daunting experience for many people. So I think that consistency of turning up, doing the same sun salutations to start every time, and then moving through a set sequence with a specific progression ahead of them led to Quite a good turn up to class and that sort of stuff. But then I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do. There were aspects of the system that I felt could have been done better. That's probably going to anger a few people, but I still believe it now. So it's, uh, and it was one of the questions I've got for you today is when you started to get into ASNA, what did you feel? And obviously, what you felt in your 20s, 30s, and now 40s is going to have changed massively, especially in the last five years as you've been exploring new things. Do you think there's certain things that really lack from that system, speaking specifically about the Ishtanga Vinyasa method, that could be done better for overall health and movement complexity? Um, And yeah, just basically movement as a whole.
1: I had the good fortune of also meeting uh, Simon Borgolivia. I'm not sure if you know him, but he's a yoga teacher from Sydney as well. Uh, And he was a physio and very much into what we now know as active flexibility. In those days, he used to describe it this way. He used to say, you know, the greater the difference between what you can do actively and what you can do passively, the greater chance of injury. And the aim is to try to reduce that gap between active and passive flexibility. So he was ahead of his time in that sense because now obviously that's everybody knows that and that's kind of a thing so i always had that background even within the astanga system in the way that i practiced so i could see on one level yeah i could see there were a lot of things that didn't seem right in terms of the alignment aspect also because there was a in those days i teaching was very prevalent within the yoga community so it was kind of like we were practicing ashtanga but with a lot of ayanga alignment principles but then you'd go to mysore and go to india and you know that was totally it was not like that at all so yeah there's a, I mean it's a few directions i could go with this i just want to be off the top of my head and say in those days i really believed in the method And I really thought, you know, this, if you do this practice, you're going to have amazing health and longevity and no need to do anything else. I really believe that. I used to still surf, but I pretty much gave up everything else, running and lifting weights. and Yeah, any other forms of exercise. I mean, I'd still play, like if I might play game tennis or play some sports or whatever for fun, But in terms of training, I gave up everything and just did the yoga and I really believed in them. But, you know, there was still early days then, right? Because the, you'd say, the first generation of Western yogis who had gone to India in the 70s or late 60s, 70s, by the time I met them, they were in their mid to late 40s, so my age now so we couldn't really tell yet what the effect was going to be long term of doing so much asana focusing so much on flexibility but within about 10 years i started to see what was going on and i noticed by the time they were getting to 60 they were really falling apart if not before not all so it's not a blanket statement there's a lot of i know there are some who fared better but You know, a lot of them, you wouldn't, if you had to run for the bus or something like that, you wouldn't count on them to be able to do it. That in my, in the back of my mind, I guess I started to see that and I was like, okay, maybe at some point I'm going to probably need to do something different to balance it out. Yeah. In my 2010 onwards, that's when my mind started to shift a little bit around 2010 to 2014, 15, was where I was really like, peaking uh in my asana practice so i was going for
0: it when you say peaking it would be um sort of for those that don't know obviously there's different almost levels if you could consider it that way within in the Shtanga vinyasa method what level were you peaking at if, if that makes sense
1: the general rule of thumb would be like it takes two years to learn the first series primary series and then it takes and about four years to learn the intermediate and then about eight years to learn the advanced a and i mean by learn i mean to be able to be proficient in it so already you're looking at like 14 years of practice to get to that level and then when you start going to the fourth fifth and sixth series i mean there's i don't know there's hardly anyone who's got to the fifth or sixth Series, nobody I know anywhere. A couple of people have started the fifth, but nobody who's completed. So that's what I mean. So it had taken me fourteen years to get to that level, and then I started, you know, peaking in a way because it's almost like you get to the peak, and then the only place to go from there is down. So I was kind of aware of that, and then I guess that I started to get some interested in in other forms of training as well. Right. That's another story we can get into that.
0: Just obviously looking at the patterns, cause you were talking about this in quite a recent context in terms of you were looking at people in their fifties and sixties to sort of analyze uh, longevity or longevity in their practice and their lifestyle, I think for many people, when they look at yoga as a whole, the perspective always defaults to it's an ancient practice. So how do we not have information on people already? Would you be able to just explain the difference? or how yoga as a whole yoga is a whole system as opposed to just the asana aspect and how that's changed significantly as time's gone on
1: that's a really interesting point i actually never thought of that that's yeah if if it's an ancient system then we should have evidence of practitioners who as they age to be honest and a lot of people these days it's become very not politically correct to say this but there weren't that many Indians practicing these forms of asana when I started you know when I first went to India and I would tell people I'm going to do uh, to learn yoga they would just go oh yeah that's that's very good exercise and that used to always bug me man because I was thinking I was on this spiritual mm-hmm. quest you know <laughs> and and I was like no no this is spiritual practice but for them you know their spirituality was embedded in their daily life and they had their their rituals and their prayers and whatever but the yoga asana wasn't it was a form of exercise but the yoga that they would do would be much more simple kind of Like you would see maybe in in the parks in China, like, you know, the neck circles, the wrist circles, the shoulder circles, this kind of stuff, you know, like all that old school kind of uh, joint articulation, rotational routines. So that is kind of like, would it be a a yoga practice and then just a few asanas, you know, definitely not what we were doing with this Danga Vinyasa basically Patavi Joyce was not known at all outside of Mysore and even the people in Mysore very few were practicing it was not till much later that the boom which is now seen in India with a lot of young uh, up-and-coming kids practicing started much much later like I would say in the last five to ten years so that's why we just don't really have any predecessors any idea of what was going on in terms of the practitioners we know there was krishnamacharya and Ayenga. they lived krishnamacharya lived to 100 Ayenga lived to i think 94 95 but their practices changed a lot from more dynamic uh, vinyasa style to passive restorative type practices I think, would lie over bolsters in back bends for hours, and he used to do a lot of inversions. I think he stopped doing leg like behind the head, so that's how he kind of combated the aging was to by opening the body up to stop the body from going into this kind of flex position. He was really trying to just open the body up and then go into the inversions. So that's one element, and then the other element is that these practices were originally not about. Longevity that were about awakening Kundalini, which was seen as a step towards enlightenment and samadhi. There's a very complex history behind how the resurgence of the interest in asana within India and also in the West depends which
0: story you want to believe. I heard these stories, and just like many things, um, it's very easy to end up with a very almost like Chinese whispers where. One story becomes something else, but then it becomes so derooted or disconnected from its initial story that you don't know who to believe because you're getting it from all directions and slightly different each time. So if you could sort of summarize, because bearing in mind, you're going to be trying to cover hundreds, if not thousands, of years of history within a couple of minutes, uh, that'd be really good.
1: I mean, so the original story for Astanga Vinyasa was that Krishnamacharya, who's considered the grandfather of modern yoga, went to Tibet and he learnt this uh, practice and he was told that it was contained in a manual called the Yoga Karunta. and unfortunately the story goes that the Yoga Karunta was in a library in Calcutta and by the time Krishnamacharya got to see it, it was being eaten by ants and then eventually it just no longer existed which is quite possible because of the the weather and so on in india the the manuscripts don't last forever but there's no way to verify that there ever was such a text ancient text called the yoga karuntha but that was kind of like the the fable or the myth that we were told but some people believed it some people didn't there was another story which was going around was that this practice was created in the Mysore Palace in the 1930s, and Krishnamacharya was employed by the Maharaja to teach uh, young boys, and that's why they have this kind of more military style of counting the vinyasa: one, inhale, raise the hands; two, exhale, bend forward; three, inhale, head up you know, no flowery language, just very kind of military style, starting and finishing in uh, samastiti or Tadasana, the mountain pose. And then you would have probably heard of Yoga Body, which was Mark Singleton. So he came out with that book in late 2008 or 9 or 10 or time around that, And his controversial theory was that actually the whole thing was part of a nationalist agenda within india to get rid of the british and to start to strengthen the indian population using native practices like asana but also combining them with calisthenics that came from europe and so this theory became quite prevalent. And I know in a lot of yoga schools, that book is part of the yoga teacher training. But in recent years, there was another group from the UK, the Hatha Yoga Project, and they were doing a lot of research and they uncovered a lot of manuscripts. And one in particular, very interesting, called the Hatha Yoga Vyasa Padhati, which means the practice manual on Hatha Yoga. And it's very similar in the way it looks to Astanga Vinyasa, many postures are very similar. And there's even diagrams of more dynamic movements, of which they're just guessing may have come from Indian wrestling. And if you're familiar with Indian wrestling, they have what they call Dands, D-A-N-D-S, and you know, that's where you get like Hindu push-ups and all that kind of stuff, right? so that has been around for a long time at least since medieval times so even if the practice is not thousands of years old there's a good chance that it's at least not the exact practice that's been done now but practices similar to this at least 500 years old with influences from that long back so that's kind of where we're at today I think in terms of understanding where all this comes from but it's important to remember again that that hatha vyasapadati was meant for monks or ascetics living in the jungle or living in the forest who had renounced the world and were very much focused on awakening kundalini
0: yeah so improving energy transfer through the body i suppose is one very simple way of trying to communicate that isn't it i mean obviously it's far more simple or complex depending how you look at it but improving the way things flow and move through the body would be one of the primary reasons for exercise as opposed to, um, a six pack.
1: Yeah, it was definitely not about getting (laughs) six.
0: This is what I always try and see with my practice. Now when I'm teaching, whether it falls into a yoga asana context or bubble is that I understand that people are trying to get something from the practice. So for some people, a form of exercise is actually what they need because they're sedentary for so much of their day. So if we can tap into every joint, we can look at multiple movement patterns. We can do them well in sync with the breath and making sure the class peaks in the middle and tails off at the end. Then personally, the way my practice has evolved is I see nothing wrong in that. That's what really interested me when you put the post on about the burpees and how similar the sun salutation is to a burpee, because you're jumping up, you're coming back down. And in terms of blood shunting and demand on the body, it's very similar. Equally, I looked a lot at the, the club work the clubs, maces, uh, or meals, and the relationship between like Persian yoga as it's been branded over the years, and in Iran, the way they would train. So there's a lot of similarities across the world where Hindu push-ups were part of their routine, maybe a push-up board, but these things are so interlinked. And as I've always been told, the human body can only move in a certain amount of ways. And you'd like to think inevitably we would have picked up on some of the best movement patterns anyway, just because it felt good
1: yeah even they, they aren't they called indian clubs
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: there's must be a long history of clubs in in india right did it come from persia or it came from india
0: it depends what text you read if you look in the 1930s and 40s specifically when a lot of them seem to surface in the uk probably because of we won't get down this path but my, the relationship between the uk and india over the years how The Indian clubs were so integrated into daily life and exercise. If you look at images in, in that era in the UK, you've got all of these people standing on spots or in lines doing their calisthenics and using Indian clubs. And when my friend was clearing loft spaces out for auctions and when people would pass away, he was always finding wooden Indian clubs all over the country. And even in the Royal Marines the PTIs, the physical training instructors, their badge, if you want to think of it that way, um, has crossed Indian clubs as, as part of their insignia to to demonstrate they are a physical training instructor. So it's very rooted in in English culture, especially over the last seventy years. I mean, I
1: I love reading all those those stories. That's one of the things I loved about that book, The Yoga Body, is not just about yoga, but really goes into the history of physical culture and how it's spread you know, worldwide. So even uh, you're talking about the connection between all these disciplines. I remember reading in one of those texts about uh, wrestling in India, that they would do pranayama, which is one of the yogic breathing practices. They would start off their routine by doing pranayama. So there was that connection between the yoga practices and the wrestling practice.
0: Was there any specific techniques mentioned? Then maybe I'd, I'd have to go and check. I'm interested now. <laughs>
1: There's definitely always been people who have been combining different elements, doing a kind of a
0: multidisciplinary approach. I had um, on one of the previous podcasts, uh, Adam Ellis, who's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, and he's well trained within within that sort of field. And he, we were just discussing. The gracies who've really pushed through forms of like nauli uh, demonstrating nauli as part of their practice it's almost like that inner frame work because when the ground is on your back or your front depending on the orientation of your body finding space within your own frame is very important and obviously this is apparent in asana and many different disciplines how you can absorb within that frame and then express outwardly that really leads me into the other things as well is what other modalities say modalities, but other practices and things have you looked at over the years? Cause I know you've looked at FRC and um, kin stretch and that sort of stuff recently. How has that affected your practice and what else have you studied?
1: I came across the FRC and what, what I liked about it was, was very systematized. The protocols were very well thought out and clear, you know, starting off with assessment, joint assessment going through the body, making sure that every joint is working as it should, taking note of any joint pain, then having a process of how to correct that. When I saw that, I was like, man, like that would be so useful in a yoga practice. Because in a yoga practice, you're going through a set sequence, and you're trying to achieve specific poses. And often at the expense of the joints, because you get to your sun salutation and you've got to do a plank or you've got to do a chaturanga, you've got to do an upward dog, and maybe you get there and the very first one, you can feel your left shoulder, doesn't feel good, right? And then what ends up happening is people just push through that. They just push through the pain and end up pushing through the pain day after day, week after week, month after month, and after a while it becomes a chronic injury. Whereas what I liked about it was just like, okay, why not start off with, you know, shoulder rotation, check in with the shoulder first, the shoulder's not feeling good. Maybe you need to modify your practice today, do something different. Protocol then understanding how to expand range of motion. And then going back to what Simon, my teacher said about uh, trying to close the gap between passive and active flexibility. Uh, That's, you know, FLC is all about that. And has a, quite a clear protocol as to how to achieve that but at the same time i was kind of found it was lacking a bit of soul you know like i could never really resonate with like the the full body tension and making the pulling faces and all that kind of stuff you know coming from a yoga background where you're trying to keep the face relaxed and keep your breathing relaxed, it's quite uh, difficult to really take on board that whole like push, 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 trying to ramping up, you know, your your voluntary contraction to 95% or whatever. It definitely had its place, but it's not, for me, it was not like the end goal I've sort of like integrated what I needed from that and kind of been uh, exploring a little further. I just recently did a, an online course with Dan Van Zandt from Flexibility Research. Are you aware of him?
0: No, I haven't looked at that.
1: He's a super smart, knowledgeable guy and very scientific in his approach. And he kind of, again, it was just good to have another perspective, especially these days with all the, you know, like the confusion around mobility and flexibility.
0: Oh, it's crazy.
1: And he... I mean, he points it out. It's like actually, there are four types of flexibility, uh, and that's all it is. So, just keep it simple the joint's either moving or it's not. So, it's either static or it's dynamic. And you're either contracting a muscle or you're not. So, it's either passive or it's active, right? So, you've got static active and static passive. You've got dynamic active and dynamic passive. So, basically like most of what we see on youtube and instagram as mobility flows is basically just dynamic flexibility like a cossack squat going from cossack squat to side to side right your it's dynamic flexibility whereas frc had kind of defined it as flexibility is passive mobility is active but what Dan points out is in the scientific literature, this is not how it's defined. Flexibility and range of motion are pretty much synonymous and mobility is more to do with like more simple things like the ability to move, the ability to walk and run, walk upstairs, this kind of stuff. Range of motion is to do with flexibility. And then, you know, people's, call it mobility if you add weight to your back or whatever but you know this could we could just say this is loaded stretching people maybe want to look into this uh, your listeners i bought into that whole thing of flexibility is passive and mobility is active And now i'm changing my mind on all that that's kind of where i'm at in terms of my just understanding of flexibility and Yeah, in terms of how to apply it to yoga, um, I've just been really interested in recent years in trying to find more effective ways to help people in their practice. Because one of the things that if we take the principles of strength and conditioning, like sets and reps and tempos and all this kind of stuff, you can apply that to flexibility, whereas that's not something that's done in a yoga practice. And which is why I feel like some people seem to get very good results when they practice yoga and other people don't at all.
0: It's interesting. You said that actually, because the only tempo in reality, obviously for those that don't know about tempo within a standard programming, you'd put the eccentric, the negative, the portion, whether it's a hold at the end of the eccentric then the concentric. So the normally an upward movement or downward movement, depending which orientation the body's in and then a hold at the other end. So you've got four different. Numbers that dictate how many counts or seconds within each in Asana. Really the count is very much the same as well, isn't it? Like transition one, two, but, but, but right next. And I suppose, like you said, maybe if someone is slowing things down, having a slow day, then the quick day and then very tempo day. So they're controlling every negative powering up through the concentric. It gives them a very different experience of their practice. It's not just this one speed. Because if we only move at one speed, that's all we have within the toolbox. If we can go fast, but we can go really slow and even hold a position. That's the spectrum. We really need a bit of everything in my opinion. And then
1: also doing, you usually just do one posture one time, right? What if you did reps, What if you did it 10 times and suddenly you get a
0: very different effect. Yeah. Cause you might do seven reps. If you do seven practices a week, you're only doing effectively, say you do one on each side, seven reps per side per week. Yeah, that's a very different way of, I haven't thought of that. That's a really good way of looking at that.
1: Adding load. So initially, just using hands on the floor would be no load. And then having your hands by your ears suddenly makes it harder. And then more hands by your side. And then having your hands over your head it increases the difficulty a lot.
0: Have you seen anyone with a weighted vest on yet? <laughs> Has that been done?
1: Not yet. <laughs> but interestingly, there were some styles when I first started that would do all forward bends. You would be done with arms overhead, bending forward, and then coming back up with the arms overhead. And that's quite challenging for your uh, posterior chain. But then that kind of went out of fashion. And then, you know, the progression from that would be then to start loading going into a different dimension now it's like what is the aim of yoga what is the aim of doing all these you know different flexibility techniques loaded stretching and so on
0: yeah that's that's always the challenge i'm I try and keep at the forefront obviously the, the name of the podcast was dictated by how my practice was evolving was that the more advanced movement patterns, the ability to stand on your hands and do all these different things and then go to a full range of motion through different joints. It's like, well, okay. Yeah, it's there if I need it, but do I need it? Is it going to, like you said, if people are getting to 60 and can't uh, use this analogy before, but they can't sit on the toilet or walk to the front door or sprint, if they're in danger, then it's showing a limitation in the practice because for years the emphasis has been on attaining these potentially hollow goals at the detriment of human movement which is very backwards when we think of it that way Oh well,
1: man so i'm glad you raised that point because that was a big thing for me when i because i went from the yoga world and then started entering into the movement, so-called movement world or calisthenics body weight training world and then what I saw was very similar in the term, in the sense of like in the yoga world, the goal is meant to be, say, inner peace, right? Or if you want to go further than that, enlightenment samadhi. But at a certain point, we get taken away from that goal and we end up focusing on external goals like oh, I want to be able to do a scorpion or I want to be able to do, put my leg behind my head or I want to be able to do a split or whatever okay and so that those the whole focus becomes obsessed around attaining these asanas and then somehow thinking or just also investing yourself or your sense of self-worth in whether or not you're able to do those postures and i mean you can see that on instagram all the time right and the, the yoga world on instagram it's all all about that so then i came into the movement world and then suddenly it was actually the kind of the same thing going on it's like whether you could do a one-arm handstand or one-arm chin-up or a handstand push-up or a whatever press the handstand or whatever the trend is at the moment it was like those external goals were what everyone was becoming obsessed with and you could see that's a lot of people's sense of who they are and self-worth being attached to whether or not they could do those things and so then in 2020 before yeah I, I ended up doing a MoveNat course. They don't have like weekend workshops anymore or anything, so you have to kind of do their accreditation and become certified MoveNat trainer. So I ended up doing the level one, level two training, and that was really cool, man, because that really is like what we're talking about. It's like what are the basic human movements? Okay, so you've got like crawling. Walking, running, jumping, landing, throwing, catching, swimming, lifting, carrying—all this kind of stuff—that's all part of the practice and trying to put that into your everyday life. And then that's where I really realized, oh wow! Then you know, the asana is very limited in that sense because you've got okay, you've got some crawling patterns, you've got you know the basic sitting patterns, how to get up and down off the floor but you don't have any lifting, carrying, throwing, catching, jumping, landing, all this kind of stuff, running, walking. So that kind of changed a lot in terms of of my perspective. Okay. What are we doing this for? And that's like the name of your podcast, right? Human first. So in terms of like,
0: what is it that we need to be, to be human? The way I think of these things is these more advanced things, as long as they're not the detriment of your overall movement pattern or existence as a human being, that they are fun. They create a journey. There's a a mental aspect created behind these things, dedication, all these different principles that come to the forefront. I was told that deadlifts, there's certain personalities on social media that are deemed as movement experts. But if they were parents, I'm pretty sure they would be putting deadlifts awkward pickups carries into their movement patterns and not vilifying these these processes because they're a natural human requirement. We can't ignore these things because you don't say to your child, you're going to have to stay on the floor because this isn't the perfect way to move. You've got to pick them up <laughs> and then hold a pram or do something. Jefferson curls have been brilliant for that. Like I've been using Jefferson's to really strengthen the ability. It sounds crazy, but strengthen the ability to lean over a cot In an awkward position because i don't want to injure my lower back and i always see progress now as if i'm continuing to train and i'm no longer injured or not injured then i'm making progress it doesn't have to be the attainment of a a more advanced skill because i'm going about my way of living free of pain and that fundamentally should be in my opinion at the forefront of human health and, and the reason why we train and practice yeah man i like that sure Awesome, man. I know you're a busy man, and I know you've got uh, dad duties to to get on with. So there's just two questions I'd like to sort of get into. How have you found being a parent, because this always resonates with a lot of people who listen to the podcast, how have you found being a parent has affected your training? Do you find that it's been more challenging? And if so, what methods have you put in place to enable you to do so in conjunction with your wife? It's changed
1: a lot. And it's made me really appreciate the benefits of training or having a practice because there have been a lot of moments, especially combined that being a parent and the whole lockdown situation for a year, just really feeling like trapped, not being able to go anywhere. Being in Bali is different, but it's still, there's a lot of pressure being a parent here not to say, I mean, I love it as well. It's the most amazing thing ever, but it it can be both, right? As any parent knows, right? It's the most intense love and joy, but it's also can really be the most intense and stressful thing that you ever have to do. And what I have found is that the training, the practice is a place where I can go and really just focus and sweat and work hard and get that dopamine hit you know of having some goals to try to reach getting endorphins going whatever it is it just all that stuff I really have found wow this stuff really helps me to be a better parent because once I do my practice or do my session then I can go back and I feel like satisfied that I've done something for myself and you know, I've gone, got it out of my system. I, I mean, I love to move, man, I'm, I, it's definitely an addiction. And so if I don't get to do it, I feel, I, I, I can do it on my rest days, but if I don't get to do it other days, I don't feel myself. What I've also found is that I need to be much more efficient because before I could just happily just go on and on training for hours and hours a day, right? I used to be able to do three hour sessions, whatever, whereas now I need to get it done most of the time within 60 minutes. And that's been a challenge, especially a hand balancing practice. I find it's really hard because it just sometimes it can take half an hour to get in zone. And then you're like, oh, shit, now I've got to finish. So just trying to be really strict with that. Lifting weights, I find is probably the best in that sense, because it's like, very quick and easy there's not a lot of skill or mental kind of skill required you can just go and pump it out and then you can be done within half an hour 45 minutes you can really feel like you've done some work whereas body weight training or skills training is a little bit different more challenging in
0: that sense one thing i've had to do recently and it's i've just been trialing it is say i do a leg session in my rest periods i've been doing static handstands so using that rest period to invert, say it's a three minute rest period, I'm like, okay, I can spend the first minute in a handstand, shake off for two minutes and then get back into the next set. And it's actually been working really well. It's it's been quite interesting to to trial that and also using the handstands as my warm up just to get the alignment, get the appropriate good to go, prior to moving into my session. And that's been really good. So having to be more efficient is definitely something I've been able to relate to. The other thing you said is like movement itself. self. Um, I've noticed that I feel like it's not that movement is an extra activity for me, I feel like it is me. It That is what I do, that's, that's me as a whole, I wanna move. And if I feel like I can't move, maybe this is part of the practice, maybe this is part of a life lesson, I'm sure it is. It's trying to let go of it as well. That's the hard bit, trying to understand that I don't need that to be me, but I, I tend to work better. I think of it that way. I tend to be a little bit more on edge, a little bit more lively, a little bit more of service if I can do that practice. So it's um, ongoing negotiations are always needed.
1: (laughs) It's about also finding the right amount, the right dosage, right? Because if I train too hard, then I'm no good (laughs) as a father, right? Because I'm too tired and I don't want to play or whatever. I don't want to look after my daughter. So it's like finding that right amount that gives me energy.
0: Awesome. Last question, Mark, to finish every podcast, I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. What principles would be at the top of your list to form the foundations of human health, or in other words, a human first approach?
1: So wake up, get some sunlight and do some journaling. I've been doing that for more than 20 years, I guess. So just get your head straight in the morning, get clear on what your goals are for the day, maybe recap on the day before on what went well, what didn't go well, and then get into it, whatever it is that you'd like to do. Go for walk, for run, go for surf, train. Yeah, don't procrastinate. The other thing that I'm trying to get better at is uh, allowing myself to sleep more i mean having a baby is the worst thing to have all this research coming out telling you how important sleep is when you just had a baby you start to feel like oh shit, it was better when we thought we could just live on four (laughs) hours six hours sleep
0: yeah leave me alone i was happy in that bubble yeah
1: (laughs) i mean these it's pretty standard right eat well get enough sleep get enough sunlight good amount of exercise
0: of course and i'd say just to to really highlight what you mentioned earlier um i looked up the movement principles basically as well i think the patterns you talked about were very prevalent in staying functional as a human being and i use functional as the ability to live well and to complement the lives of those around you i think that's huge so if that's part of your movement then you're probably on the right track absolutely awesome mark thanks so much for your time buddy thank you
1: that was fun thanks
0: man thank you for joining mark and myself on this episode Please support the podcast by liking, subscribing, commenting and sharing, all of which is massively appreciated. See you on the next episode.